If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of James, chapter 5, the fifth chapter of the book of James. We are headed towards the end of this series, believe it or not. And uh, James, chapter 5, we started, uh, I don't even remember back, we were, I think, filming in the Student Worship Center when we started not too long after Easter. Uh, about three months or so, give or take, we've been in the series. And uh, so if things go according to plan, <laughs> which we know doesn't always happen in these days in which we live, but today will be the next to the last message in James next Sunday we're going to finish it out. And so James chapter 5 is where we are this morning. And I will say, I'll go ahead and, and make the comment that this passage today is probably the hardest passage in all of James chapter 5. It's, you know, the Bible has difficult passages. There are times when you'll come across a, 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 a set of scripture, a set of verses. It's just hard to understand exactly what they mean and how they unpack. In some ways, they almost sound contradictory. In other ways, they're not. And so today's that, that passage is probably the hardest passage in all all of the entire book of James. We're going to deal with it. We're going to, we're going to give a shot at it. And uh, I'm going to try to lay out um, a couple of the different understandings, different interpretations of this passage. And obviously, by the time we finish, there'll be some strong things for us to take away as well. James chapter 5. I remember when I was a kid, I was, I was that kind of kid who always wanted to know why. I just wore my mom and dad out with questions, questions, questions. And, and uh, I, I just I needed to know why. Now, how many of you were that way when you were a kid? I'm curious. Any of you were that why? kind of a person. Some of you, maybe now you still are that way. How many of you, it all sort of came around full circle, your parents now, and you have kids that are those why kind of kids, all right? So now you know what it was like for your, for your own mom and dad. Well, I was that kid when I was, when I was young, and so I always wanted to know why, and it was like, hey, we're going to the store. Why? Well, we got to buy some food. Why? Because we have to eat dinner. Why? And, uh, and, and if you remember when you were a kid, it always ended with your mom or your dad saying, because I'm the parent, that's why. And that just sort of ended the discussion. Well, this passage, God isn't quite that blunt, but this passage today is, is sort of one of those passages. You're going to be left wanting to know why, 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 and why do, you know, we, we want more info here. And God just doesn't give us the info. And what sometimes seems difficult for us to understand would make perfect sense if we had all of the info. But for whatever reason, God doesn't answer every question that you're probably going to have when you look at this passage of scripture today. And yet even there, we're going to learn some things that are going to be beneficial and helpful for us if we take it and if we only apply what we do know from the verses we're going to look at. So here, here's the kind of the book of James in a nutshell. The book of James was directed at a group of Christians that were scattered all over the world. They were from a Jewish background, but they had placed their faith in Jesus. And now probably to some degree, uh, it was because of persecution. They had experienced persecution for their faith, and now they're scattered over that part of the world. James writes them a letter. And he writes this letter. It's a simple letter. It's to the point, 108 verses. It's not real long, five chapters in our Bibles. Uh, and, and he hits a lot of the practical applications of what it means to be a follower of Jesus to the point to where we've titled this series Wholehearted because he's talking about what a wholehearted walk with Jesus looks like in practical terms. And so he talks about going through hard times in chapter one and how we count it all joy when we go through hardships and challenges and and and. Uh, times of trial in our lives. He's talked about not showing favoritism to other people, that we treat people as those who bear the image of God. He's talked about guarding our, our tongue. He's talked about being doers of the word. Uh, he's talked about all these different aspects of what it means to be a fully devoted, wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to look at today is he's going to talk about another important aspect of that, and that is the aspect of prayer, specifically 
praying for others. And so as we jump in this morning, let's just go ahead and take a dive into the passage we're going to look at. I'm going to read over it all at once, the the verses we're going to see today, starting in verse 13. And then I'm going to make some points as we go and move through it a little more slowly. And, uh, And hopefully I'll point out those areas where some scholars disagree as to what it means and then point out those things that we can clearly bank on. So let's go ahead and jump in. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Again, probably the most difficult passage in this entire book for us to interpret and understand exactly what it means. So James begins, verse 13. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed." The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. would be nice to have Elijah through this summer as my front yard just dies before my very eyes, right? To have a little more rain. So, so this, again, this is a difficult passage to, for us to follow. There are some questions that come out when we read this passage. You may have already begun to think through what some of these questions are. And again, uh, the, these, the, this message today is going to be a little bit different because we're going to kind of dig a little bit deeper and uh, it's just going to have a little different tone to it. So let's look at some of the difficult questions that come out of this passage. First question, what does sick mean in verse 14? All right, this is where it feels like school. So those of you students who are starting school this week, it's going to feel like school here for the next few moments. What does the word sick mean in verse 14? That sounds like an odd question. Now, let me just say, if you're new to reading the Bible, 99% of the Bible, when you read it, 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 it means exactly what it says. It's you take it at face value. It's very easy to apply. Again, this is a difficult passage of scripture, and there is some variance by those who make a living from studying the scriptures. We call them scholars. There's some variance as to what the word sick means. Here's the reason. When Jesus James wrote this letter, he would have written it in what we would call New Testament Greek. It was the Greek language of the day, Koine Greek. And, uh, and so when we read our English Bible, this is a translation of the Greek New Testament. It's a translation of the original language. And when you look at this word, the word is Athaneo, and when you look at the Greek word that we translate as sick, 18 times in the New Testament, it's translated as meaning exactly what you think it is. It's somebody who's not feeling well. It's someone who has a disease or an illness or whatever may be the case. 18 times that it's used in the New Testament, that's exactly what it means. But 14 times in the New Testament, almost the same amount of times, that Greek word, Athaneo, which we translate as sick, means to be spiritually weary or to be spiritually weak. Those are two very different understandings that kind of play out in this passage. So the first hard question is, we'll get to this in a moment, what does sick mean in verse 14? Second hard question that comes out of this passage is, who are the elders? It says that if anyone is sick, let him call the elders of the church. Now, who are the elders? 
Well, typically in the New Testament, when you see that word for elders, it translates as pastor. There are about three different words in the New Testament that are used interchangeably to refer to the one who fills the office of pastor, right? And I know our children's pastor, Jeremy, would love to be in this room right now in realizing that elder refers to pastor. And so he would wear me out one side, up one side and down the other, I'm sure, if he was in here right now. But I would also say, well, you're one of those too. And so the word elder does mean pastor, but also here's where it gets a little bit technical. Remember, James was written more than likely the first book in the New Testament. I mean, it comes towards the end you know, in your Bible, but it was written probably first in the New Testament. Maybe even before the structure of pastors even existed in the local church. And so many scholars believe that the word elder refers to those who are just spiritually mature, right? And so when it says to call for the elders, that could mean people like me and Eric and Jason and Jeremy and Adam who fill the role of pastor in a local church, but it may mean you, right, as a spiritually mature person that when someone is sick, let them call for the spiritually mature who are in the church. There's some variance in the understanding there. The third hard question in this passage is what's up with the anointing oil, right? Some of you maybe you have come from a denominational background, such as Baptist, your whole life, or for the largest part of your Christian life, and uh, you've never experienced the whole deal with being anointed with oil, right? I can't say that I ever have. Uh, and, and for you, it may seem kind of like, well, what's up with that? That is just, that's kind of not what I, am I supposed to believe that? Should I not believe that? But then James is saying, let this happen. What's going on with this? And then there's a fourth difficult question, is prayer and faith a guarantee of healing, right? If I pray and have enough faith, does that mean the way this verse sounds, guaranteed I'm going to be healed? All right, so you can see now <laughs> that this passage is the hardest passage in the book of James to rightly understand. So let's start walking through it a little more slowly, and let's see what we can, can glean from it as we move through. Let, let's move back to the beginning. Verse 13 in James chapter five. I'm gonna read through more verse for verse. We're gonna pull out some truths along the way and see if we can unpack a little bit more of what we're looking at. Verse 13, it says, is anyone among you suffering? You'll notice here James asks three questions. Is anybody suffering? Is anybody cheerful? Is anybody among you sick? Those three questions have three different answers. He says, if you're among the suffering, then he must pray, right? If you're in that crowd suffering, and he doesn't mean just physical suffering. That word suffering can mean uh, emotional suffering, mental suffering, spiritual. It can mean any type of suffering. If you're in that crowd today, what James says is he must pray. And there's a good reminder there because praying is not always the first recourse, right? That's not always the first uh, option that we cling to. Sometimes we tend to blame if we're suffering. We want to blame somebody else. If you're on social media, listen, it is always somebody else's fault. It is never your fault. Uh, social media is where you go to confess everybody else's sins. It's like the anti-scripture in a sense. And so if you're suffering, the, the role is not to, pr uh, not, not to blame. It's not to complain. It's not to ultimately give up or throw in the towel, right? If you're suffering, James says, then what you need to do is you need to pray. It doesn't mean it's all going to go away, but what it does is it's going to link you to a God who is in complete control because a lot of times our suffering is connected to something that we cannot control. He says, so pray. Second group of people, second question, is anyone cheerful? He says, sing praises. You know, a lot of times we forget to praise God for the good stuff. Man, th these are hard days in which we find ourselves. 
I mean, this is not easy. This, is, this has not been easy for anybody. I mean, I look out here. I've never, I've been preaching for years. I've never preached with this many masks, right, in one place. And it's good for you because you can yawn all through my sermon and I won't even know, right? I know you see the upside of this, but it, th- these are just weird days. I mean, just a few months ago, this building was packed. And then after that, we're, I'm preaching to a camera, right, with four other people in the room. And then we're slowly kind of gravitating back. For some of you, you've lost jobs. You've had family members lose jobs. You've been through illness, not associated with this. Some of you have been through this illness or had loved ones who were. You face all kinds of hardships, right? These are challenging days in which we find ourselves, and yet there are so many things to be grateful for. I mean, there are people in hot spots in this world who love Jesus more than we do, and they are totally wholehearted, sold out in their relationship with Jesus, and yet they risk persecution. They risk loss of their own life or their loved ones just by being known to worship Christ in a public setting. There are places in this world today that in 24 hours, 12 hours before now and 12 hours after this, who will face that kind of threat and danger to their life. They would gladly take a mask, right, in exchange for what they face to identify publicly with the person of Jesus, right? We've got so much to be grateful for. And in the midst of challenge, in the, uh, we, we, we can take our, our requests to God when we uh, come through places where we realize how blessed we are. He says, sing praises, thank God. May make a list. Make a list of the things you can praise God for if that helps. And then he says, is anyone among you sick? As I mentioned, two different understandings of that word. Let me take a moment to read this verse in the context of this word sick, meaning physical sickness, okay? Let let me just take a moment to kind of sift through this verse, and we're going to read it as some believe that it means physical sickness. Is anyone among you physically sick? Now, what is this verse saying? It says, for those who are sick, call for the elders of the church. They are to pray over him, anointing him with oil, in the name of the Lord. Here's what this verse doesn't mean. It doesn't mean if you're sick, get you a ticket, get down to the closest church that has the most famous faith healer in town who's going to be in existence. They are going to be on property that that next day and get as close to the platform as you can so that you can get your miraculous healing. That's not what this verse is talking about. In fact, I would go so far as to say that we don't really see a picture in Scripture that physical healing is guaranteed by God anyway, necessarily. You look at the Apostle Paul, there's Scripture uh, in Scripture, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, I believe it is, where Paul makes mention of leaving Trophimus behind. Trophimus was a guy that was one of Paul's traveling companions or ministry companions, that he left him behind in a city called Miletus. Now, if Paul had the ability to heal him on the spot and to pray for him and anoint him with oil, why did he leave him behind sick? Paul makes mention in Philippians 2 of another ministry companion, a guy by the name of Epaphrodites, and he talks about how Epaphrodites at one point was on the verge of death. He mentions to Timothy, his protege, his young son in the faith, so to speak. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy, he says, hey, mix some wine to help you with your frequent stomach ailments. He says, you know, this is going to help you. There's some medicinal value to this. Paul doesn't necessarily come and anoint him with oil and heal him right there on the spot, right? So what we, what we do when we come to hard passages is we always interpret the hard passages in light of the easy passages. And what we see in Scripture is that God doesn't guarantee healing for those who just simply have have enough faith. 
Some of you have been racked by this maybe. You've had family members who have had uh, diseases or illnesses or injuries or they've been debilitated and they've come and they've tried to come to that faith healer or that church or they called that number at 2 a.m. On the, on the TV or whatever and they made their offering and they, they planted their seed and they got the, you know, the anointed cloth or whatever and they're still just as sick as they were or they've never been healed right? and their faith has been absolutely crushed as a result of it. And it's because we don't always understand necessarily what Scripture teaches us. That we don't have this on a slide, but let me just read from a few books over. First John, Take, just listen to what this says in First John chapter five. Listen, listen to this passage of Scripture. First John five verse fourteen. It says, "This is the confidence which we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us." God does promise to answer our prayers as they align with his will. He doesn't promise to answer every prayer for healing like he's Aladdin in a bottle. In fact, even when you look at this passage, it's not an invitation to go find the nearest arena and get your ticket and get close to the platform to get up next to that faith healer. In fact, this passage says if you're the one who's physically sick, remember that's what we're dealing with here, that understanding, then he's to call for the elders. The faith healer ought to come to your house, right? <laughs> call for the elders and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. I mean, it's not about a person. It's not even about the anointing oil, whatever that might mean. We'll get to that in a second. It is about what God chooses to do. Principle number one in this passage of Scripture, let's go ahead and bring up the first principle if we can. Principle number one is that wholehearted devotion to Christ results in wholehearted conversations with God. The point of this passage is not the elders and it's not anointing oil and it's not those other peripheral things. The, the heart of this passage that James is communicating is that, man, you need to talk to God. You need to bring your needs to God. You need to bring your requests to God. And if you have a wholehearted relationship with Christ, that results in having wholehearted conversations with them. And it's not those rote, memorized passage, uh, uh, prayers, you know, the lay me down, now, now lay me down to sleep kind of prayers or, you know, thank you for this food and the hands that prepared it. It's not those kind of prayers that we pray with our heart disengaged. It's the prayers, it's the conversations we have with God where we just bring it. I mean, we just bring it to the table. We don't even know what to pray. And it doesn't sound eloquent. And sometimes there's a lot of tears and snot and all kind of stuff all mixed together. And we're at a place where we just want to have conversation with God. And we just come and we just dump our requests before him the best we can. And sometimes we're broken and sometimes we're desperate and sometimes we're confused. And we just dump it out. And what we find out is that God ultimately hears that kind of a prayer and moves according to his will. That is a really, really good thing. I'm really glad God hasn't given me everything that I've prayed for like a genie in a bottle. I'm glad that he's given me according to his will and where my will was different than his, I'm thankful that his worked in his one. But as we look at the context of this passage related to physical sickness, there's also a second principle. Let's look at what the second principle is, that it's God's discretion regarding when someone's healed and when they're not. It's up to God. So he says, bring me your requests. He says, call the elders of the church, get them involved in it. And trust me, all through the book of James, there's this emphasis on trusting him. So we've looked at this first verse. I know we've camped there for a little while. But we've looked at this fir these first two verses in the context. Remember, what does the word sick mean? Many believe it means literal physical sickness. 
Let's flip the script a little bit now and let's look at it the way that others feel that it refers to, the others feel that it means. And that is when we interpret the word sick as spiritually weary. And let's see what it says here in this context. Let's go back to the beginning again, if we can. Verse 13, and let's interpret the word sick, not as physically ill, but as spiritually weary. Remember, the Greek word, athaneo, 18 times in the New Testament, translates as physically sick, 14 times spiritually weary. It's a hard passage, not quite sure what it, where it's headed here. Let's just interpret it this way, see how it reads. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you spiritually weary? Remember, this book is written to people who knew more than likely what persecution was. They are scattered likely because of persecution. Is anyone among you spiritually weary? Then he must call for the elders, whether that's the pastors, whether that's the spiritually mature among you. He must call for the elders of the church. There's a great argument here, by the way, for the existence of the local church. Right? Some people believe that, well, there's no need to have a local church. I'm against the local church. I just belong to the universal church. This emphasizes the necessity of the local church. He must call for the elders or the spiritually mature, possibly, of the church, right? That local church. And they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So let me deal with that phrase, anointing him with oil. This could be anointing her as well. It's not just for the guys. More than likely what this means is, what it definitely means is that not that the anointing oil had any you know, healing properties. This isn't some mystical Ripley's Believe It or Not kind of deal you know, where you put the anointing oil on and I was magically healed. It's not that. It doesn't operate that way. That creates icons. That creates things that we worship. Right? When he says to anoint them with oil, more than likely what that's referring to is that anointing oil that we see in the Old Testament demonstrated that would have been an outward visual reminder of the presence of God. It was representational specifically of the Holy Spirit. Kind of like when you take the Lord's Supper, right? And you take the bread, it represents the body of Jesus. You take the cup, it represents the blood of Jesus. This would be an outward reminder to someone. Remember, we're reading this passage as though it refers to the spiritually weak, the spiritually weary. It would be an outward reminder, just like that bread does something on the inside to you to remind you of the beauty of your salvation. That cup reminds you of the beauty of your salvation, the cost of what it means to be in a relationship with God. That anointing oil would also be an outward visual reminder that, brother, you may feel separated from God. You may feel like you are down and out. You may feel like... He's a million miles away and you're getting kicked in your teeth, persecuted for your faith. And this world has you down in a chokehold on the ground. Just remember, remember that God is here and he hasn't left you and he's never going to leave you. And he's just as powerful today as he was the day that you placed your faith in him. And so he says, is anyone among you spiritually weary? Call for those who are more spiritually mature. Call for the pastors of the church and they are to pray over him and to anoint him with oil, to remind him that God is here. And it's not about the elders and it's not about the oil. All of this is in the name of the Lord. Let's go to verse 15 and let's see because it adds a little more. And that prayer offered in faith will restore, will build up the one who is spiritually weary and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. Does that mean that if you call the pastor to come and pray for you, that that's somehow gonna make you saved in a relationship with God? No, there's a 
thousand other verses, it seems, in Scripture that tell us that, does it, that we don't come to God that way. What this may mean is, is that when you pull other people into your suffering and into your hurt and into your struggle, there is something that happens in that mix when other people are praying for you and bringing you before God that rejuvenates you and that revives you and that instills confidence and courage in you to push on and to continue in this race called the Christian life. Man, it's quiet in here. And he goes even another route here. He says, and if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. He says earlier in verse 14 that we are to confess our sins. It's interesting. Sometimes our spiritual weariness can't be blamed on anybody else, and it can't be blamed on a virus, and it can't be blamed on a pastor who doesn't feed me enough, and it can't be blamed on other people who've let me down. Sometimes our spiritual weariness is because we've sinned. And sometimes even, you know, we'll have a discussion guide that goes out that I put together for these messages that, um, that'll go out right after this message is preached. It'll go on our Facebook page, and the question will be asked there. Sometimes our own sin can result in physical illness. Right When you carry that guilt and that shame, it has physical implications. And what happens is, is when we pull other people who are more spiritually mature than we are, I don't know if it means just pastors. I don't know if it means in- including others who are spiritually mature in the church. I have a feeling that's what it means. But there's like a healing, something that goes on when we just come clean. And it doesn't mean we swing open the doors of our lives and dra- drag out every skeleton, right, so that everybody can know. It's not saying that at all. But sometimes having a brother or a sister alongside of us, when we're spiritually weary and tired, knowing they're praying for us, that we can just come clean with and say, man, here's where I struggle. I mean, there is immense value to that. Look at what James says. Let's go to the next verse, verse 16. He says, therefore, confess your sins. If sin is the issue, if that's why you struggle, if that's why you're sick, right, you've been dragging this guilt, the shame, whatever it is, and it's had physical implications in your life, confess those to one another. Remember, he's writing to Christians. He's not talking about how to get saved. He's writing this letter to believers who already know God. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed, so that you may be revitalized. And the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. You know, it's interesting what James does here. He gets to this passage where he's talking again about the the power of prayer. (laughs) And it's almost like he says, hey, while we're talking about the effective nature of prayer, let me just remind you of somebody you're familiar with. His name's Elijah. He was an Old Testament prophet from about 800 years or so before these folks that would have read this letter. He said, let me just remind you about Elijah. You know Elijah, he says. Let's go to verse 17 and verse 18. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. He didn't get a spiritual hotline to God. He didn't get some extra spiritual component added to his life. He came to God like everybody else did. He was just an ordinary man who had sins and struggles and difficulties and doubts and fears. But he was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it didn't rain on the earth for three years and six months. 
And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. What what James is saying here is he closes this segment of this book. He's saying, I'm emphasizing, not elders, not anointing oil, I'm emphasizing prayer. And if you're in a place where you're struggling, or maybe even if you're sick, he says, take a look and see, is there some sin in your life that is bringing that into place? Are you downcast? Are you weary because of sin in your life? Are you physically sick because of sin? Take inventory, and if it is, man, confess and come clean with God. But if there's no sin that's involved there and this world just has you down and you are struggling and you are hurting and and, and you've been disconnected from the body of Christ and, and you're in a tough place spiritually, he says, you've got to pull people around you. Take that request to God. Pray for God to step in and to intervene, but pull some spiritually mature people in around you and let them share that struggle with you. Paul would say in Galatians, to bear one another's burdens. And man, that's been one of the most difficult aspects of this virus is that it isolates. People have died without anybody at their bedside. I mean, how horrendous is that? People not even allowed in the room with them while they breathe their last because of this virus. And what it's done spiritually as well is it has also isolated. And even in the body of Christ, it has pulled people away. We've got probably easily half of our people today watching online. And I understand completely if someone's not ready to come back. Totally understand that. That doesn't mean they have less faith. It doesn't mean they're less committed. Not in the least. But there is a real danger, and I put this in our newsletter this past Friday, there is a real danger, it doesn't matter the reason, that if we are disconnected one from another, there are going to be complications that come as a result of that. We have to find ways to fellowship. We have to have, find ways to, 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 to worship God. We have to find ways to do life together, even if it's creative. That's the ugly nature of this virus, is that it isolates us. And what James is saying here, he says, man, if you are at that place where you are weary, or maybe even sick, just bring other people in, pull them into your circle. Don't fight this battle alone and pray to a God who's in control and trust the results to him. And whatever he does, whatever he does, whatever he chooses, you can know it's his will. And you can know it's for his glory. Lazarus died. Lazarus breathed his last only to find it wasn't his last. (laughs) Jesus came and rose him up from the dead, healed him. That only happened three times in the New Testament. Everybody else we know of there in the New Testament, they died and they went to a place better if they knew Christ. You see, it's all up to him, isn't it? It's the ultimate trust that even our eternity we trust to him. And whatever he does or allows on this side, we trust him, we follow him in wholehearted devotion, not in isolation, but as part of the body of Christ. We pull others around us so that whether we're sick or whether we're weary, we know we're not in this alone, that others have our back, and that ultimately God does most of all. Hey, if you know him, you got no reason not to trust him. If you know him, you got no reason to live like you don't have hope because we do. But if you don't know him, man, he stands ready and willing and able today that if you just admit that sin to Jesus who came and died to pay for it anyway and he rose again from the dead, if you confess that sin to Christ and say, Jesus, I'm ready for a savior. You're the only one that exists. And today I invite you to forgive and take over. Man, he will do it. 
and you'll begin a relationship with God that's not built on your goodness or you earning your way there, that's built on his grace and he's never going to take it back. And it's going to be that relationship that fuels you to live differently and to be in wholehearted devotion to a God who wholeheartedly paid everything for you. Let's pray. Lord, even the hard passages of Scripture, Lord, there are things that we can gain. I think it was Peter who admitted in First or Second Peter that the Apostle Paul had written some things that were hard to understand. <laughs> Lord, if one of the disciples admits the fact that sometimes spiritual truth is beyond our ability to understand it, Lord, it makes us feel a little better when we come to passages like this. But God, at the end of the day, 99% of your word is, is so easy to understand and to apply. The hard part is whether we're willing to do that or not. And God, today we've dealt with a hard passage, but the things that are easy for us to glean are that we sometimes suffer and struggle, even spiritually as believers. But that you invite us and you call us and you welcome us to bring our needs to you in prayer that a part of being a wholehearted follower of Christ is to have wholehearted, honest, genuine, real conversations with you. And Lord, that there are times in our lives where we realize that we were never intended to walk this walk alone. Sometimes we need other spiritually mature people around us to sometimes hold us up, to sometimes pray when we don't know the words to pray. And Lord, to remind us visually that we're not here all alone. You've not left us on an island to flounder until you call us home literally or figuratively, God, you've given us other brothers and sisters in Christ to help us in our journey, to bear our burdens when we can't even bear them ourselves. And so God, thank you for this beautiful picture that we see in this passage, a picture of the local church, a picture of healing, a picture of encouragement, and a picture of you, a God who's for us and not against us. And Lord, this passage applies probably to most people in this room right now, but it doesn't apply to everyone. I would imagine either online or in this room today, there are those that are still thinking through what it means to really genuinely surrender to Jesus. Maybe some of the stuff we've looked at today has been some of the hang-up. Maybe it's been some of what they've seen about Christianity on TV or whatever that doesn't really square with your word. But for whatever reason, Lord, if you're stirring in a heart today to surrender and to trust Christ to be saved, Lord, don't let them resist any longer, but to, but to make that one decision that will change everything for them as they invite Jesus to forgive and, and to save. And so, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. Lord, it's so good to be together. It's so good to have conversations, whether by phone or in person. It's so, part, so, so, so much of a blessing to have a church family to do life with. And so, God, we just praise you today as we close for the great God you are, for the amazing things you do, and for the fact that as we trust you, we find you trustworthy, for it's in Jesus' name.